This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is the second time I've done this from home um, with a uh, kind of Hollywood Squares version of the Sangha, for those of you who remember the Hollywood Squares. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's, uh, I really thank you for showing up for the talk, and uh, it's great to see you all, faces without masks, um, and uh, it's hard to do it without the uh, feedback, you know, of being able to see everyone at once, um, but uh, I know you're there, I can see you, so thank you very much for being here. Um, so what I wanted to talk about today is, um, you know, in this time of contagion, uh, of physical distancing, of fear uh, and aversion, how do we practice saving all beings? You know, and actually, how do we practice love? Um, so I want to talk about some of the ways that Buddhist teaching speaks about the practice of love, uh, a word that we don't hear so much in Zen practice. The word for a kind of love, you know, that's probably the most familiar in nearly all uh, Buddhist settings is metta. And um, that's usually translated not just as love, but as loving kindness. And we actually just chanted, uh, and which we've been chanting uh, also every morning after Zazen, wishing you know, for loving kindness in ourselves and others. May, may I be filled with loving kindness, we said. May you be filled with loving kindness. May we be filled with loving kindness. And we also have uh, the Metta Sutta, which I think probably everybody listening is familiar with. It's a standard text in Zen chant books. Um, and there are actually two versions of the text. And uh, the shorter one begins with the words that are really very familiar. Um, May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. That's the first line. Um, and there's also a longer form, which has a kind of introduction um, to these wishes for happiness and safety. And, and that longer version, begins, this is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, <clears throat> who seeks the good and has attained peace. Right? And this version is formally called the Karana, sorry, the Karanyametta, Karanyametta Sutta, uh, after that first word, Karaniya, which means that which should be done, right? This is what should be accomplished. And that longer version includes the wishes, may all beings be happy, may they be joyous, and live in safety, and so on. Now, of all the chants that Zen uh, temple sanghas chant, this is the only one that is drawn directly from the Pali suttas, from the earliest records of the teachings of the Buddha, rather than from the Chinese and Japanese uh, texts that make up much of the rest of our usual chanting. And, you know, it feels accessible. Um, and as I mentioned, it's the only one, really, in which the word love or loving kindness appears as such. Um, <clears throat> and the practice of metta, as I said, is widespread in Buddhism, where we don't hear about it so much in Japanese Zen practice, per se. Um, Zen speaks more frequently of compassion, compassion and wisdom as a pair. 
And so they're, they're actually two different things, and they're two different words. We have metta and we have compassion. So I, I will try to talk a bit about this difference between loving kindness and compassion. They're two different words and they're two different states. Now, I think everyone who chants the Metta Sutta will be familiar with this very striking image um, of the mother and her child. Um, and so in the version that I'm most familiar with, um, I, I, it must be close to the one we chant here, uh, but I'm not exactly sure I didn't have a chance to look, so I'm just going to say it. We say, let no one deceive another nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother, at the risk of her life, watches over and protects her child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living beings, suffusing loving kindness over the entire world, above, below, and all around, without limit. And in, in the translation that I'm familiar with, we actually changed love to loving kindness to make a distinction between ordinary love in our Western sensibility and loving kindness or metta. So the emphasis in this would seem to be on protecting others, like a mother would protect her child. And the image of the child for me, you know, brings up danger. The child is vulnerable, you know, helpless. And it, it brings up also the potential grief of loss uh, for this irreplaceably precious being. And those of you who are parents will know this feeling personally and intimately. And what, what I feel when I this image arises is compassion for the mother and her vulnerability. I feel this kind of solidarity, even though I myself am not a parent. So what I want to do today here is first contextualize the Metta Sutta, and then I want to inquire uh, about it as a teaching. And finally, at the last, I'll talk about what our ancestor Dogen and the Soto Zen that we practice have to say about metta and about compassion, about love. So as some of you or all of you may know, the Metta Sutta appears in a story um, in the Sutta Nipata commentary, the last part of the Pali Canon of the record of, of the Buddha's teachings. And the story is that the Buddha taught his monks the Metta Sutta at the time when he had sent them into the forest to meditate. And they would all take up uh, places under a tree. And the tree spirits who lived in the trees didn't like this, and they tried to frighten them off. Um, and so the sutta that the Buddha taught the monks had the effect of quelling the monks' fear. And their calmness, their calm state, then calmed the tree spirits. And I think this context is an important pointer about this sutta, because the Buddha gave this as a response to fear and dismay. But its object is the monks themselves. It isn't directed at the tree spirits. And so I'll return to this um, direction in a minute. The Buddha didn't invent metta, though. Um, it's actually the first of the four Brahma-viharas, which are also probably familiar to many of you. The four heavenly abodes, or it's sometimes translated as the four immeasurables. And the four Brahma-viharas are even older than the Buddha and the Buddhist teaching. They're part of the pre-Buddhist Vedic literature. 
and they are used by the Buddha as described in the suttas, the Pali suttas. These four heavenly abodes are first metta, which again is most often translated as loving kindness. The second is karunya, usually translated as compassion. So there are two of them, two different words. Um, and this is considered to be derived from metta. Karunya comes from metta. Then we have mudita, which is sympathetic or empathetic joy, joy in the happiness of others, and upeka, or equanimity. And these four heavenly abodes, these, these four uh, uh, Brahma Viharas, they build one on the other, starting with metta and leading ultimately to equanimity, serenity, impartiality. So this, this metta goes back before the Buddha, and um, their heavenly abodes, this is the abode of the gods, the abode of, of, the, of the divine. Um, in another collection of the suttas, um, the Buddha says that if one practices the four immeasurables and dies without losing this practice, this person, this practitioner, this monk, is destined for rebirth in a heavenly realm, right? If you practice them now, you'll be reborn in the heavenly realm. And then I'll, I'm going to quote the Buddha. He said, There is the case where an individual keeps pervading the first direction, as well as the second, the third, and the fourth, so all four directions, with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Thus he keeps pervading above, below, and all around, everywhere, and in every respect, the all-encompassing cosmos with an awareness imbued with, with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. He regards whatever phenomena that there that are connected with form, feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness as inconstant, stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful, an affliction, alien, a disintegration, emptiness, not self. And I want to note that these words, you know, sound kind of different <laughs> from the teachings on compassion and on non-duality that we are more used to in our study of the Bodhisattva way, because our vows kind of more directly express inclusivity. And these words seem to push things away or to other them, you know, to kind of give them a negative uh, valence, negative charge. The Buddha then goes on to apply the same language to the other three immeasurables. And so most basically, these are practice instructions leading to liberation of the practitioner and with benefits right now, but also benefits that lead to a better rebirth. Um, the Buddha lists the uh, advantages right now of metta uh, as one sleeps in comfort, one awakes in comfort, one has no evil dreams, one is dear to human beings, one is dear to non-human beings, the gods protect the person, fire, poison, and sword cannot touch the person, one's mind can concentrate quickly, one's countenance is serene, and one dies without being confused in mind. And if one fails to attain the status of an arhat, that is an enlightened being, one will be reborn in the Brahma world, the world of the gods, kind of the next best thing. 
So very recently I was listening to some talks by Gil Fronsdale, um, a transmitted teacher, actually in our Zen lineage, who now leads the Inside Meditation Center in Redwood City in California. And he introduced me to a new term that I wanted to share with you, um, which is uh, related to metta and practice of metta and the Brahma Viharas. And um, it's relevant, I think, to these early teachings. And that term is Anukampa. Anukampa. And Gill said that this term is often translated as compassion, but it means something very different. It's also not metta. So it's a different thing entirely. He says, Anukampa is more like our natural state of interdependence, which we see and experience when we drop delusions that distort our relationality through hatred and aversion. So so if we can drop, we can resolve hatred and aversion, we will see our natural state of actually being completely interdependent. And Gil makes the point that Compassion is actually very seldom mentioned by the Buddha and only in connection with the deepest states of meditation. Whereas Anukampa, which he translates most neutrally as care, sympathy and care, encompasses all the Brahma Viharas. And Gil thinks that this word has been forgotten in uh, Buddhist teaching and is an important teaching for right now. So. As we practice meditation, we see our own suffering and can soften and open to our own suffering. We will begin to see the truth of our existence as totally interdependent on others. And the state that begins to arise is this very broad Anukampa. And that is the basis uh, for further uh, realization. So what about compassion, which the Buddha does not use so much? Um, we see a shift in emphasis when we move beyond the, ver- the earliest teachings that I have been talking about um, in uh, away from metta and more towards compassion. And about a thousand years after the Buddha lived, the four immeasurables that we just talked about were discussed in a treatise called the Visuddhimagga, the Path of Purification, which was written in the 5th century of the Common Era. And in the ninth chapter of this work, the author, whose name is Buddhaghosa, he introduces some ideas about the Buddhist path of liberation that um, are somewhat innovative. And Buddhaghosa says about the four immeasurables that his innovation is not in the original teachings. And I'm not sure about that, but he says the first thing one does is direct metta to oneself. And this is like Gil's idea about Anukampa, that we have to experience some softening, right? We have to start with ourselves. He says, this is Buddhaghosa, this initial development towards oneself is making oneself an example. If one develops it in this way, I am happy just as I want to be happy and I dread pain as I want to live and not to die, so do other beings too. Making oneself the example, then desire for other beings, welfare and happiness arise in the practitioner. And he does refer to the Buddha by saying um, what the Buddha said. He refers to what the Buddha said, and this is probably familiar to many of you too. I visited all quarters with my mind, 
nor found I any dearer than myself. Self, oneself, is likewise to every other person dear. And the conclusion is, whoever loves himself will never harm another. Right? Some of you may have heard this. So this verse breaks down the boundary between self and other, but it's beneficial only if one regards the self with loving acceptance, or we could say friendliness. Um, Tanisara Bhikkhu, who has written extensively and translated the Pali uh, canon extensively, has written, and Gil also emphasizes this, that metta is related to the word mita, or friend, and maitri, or friendliness. So he says, universal metta is friendliness for all. Buddhaghosa says, to start with, a practitioner should review the danger in hate, the advantage in patience. Hate has to be abandoned and patience attained in the development of this meditation subject. And one cannot abandon unseen dangers and attain unknown advantages. Therefore, one should embark upon the development of loving kindness for the purpose of secluding the mind from hate seen as a danger and introducing it to patience known as an advantage, which is what the Buddha recommended to his monks. Both the Buddha and Buddhaghosa regarded the four immeasurables as leading to insight and to a better future rebirth. And it's interesting that the far enemy of metta is ill will, right? You can't practice metta while you're angry. Try it. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Um, but interestingly, the near enemy of metta is said to be greed, because goodwill and greed both share the quality of seeing virtues in things. The practice of metta succeeds when ill will subsides in a practitioner, but it fails when it produces only ordinary affection or love. It's not ordinary affection. Metta is not ordinary love. Metta looks to the breaking down of barriers between self and other. It's leading in that direction. And practicing the four immeasurables is a prerequisite to Buddhahood. Elsewhere in the Pali Canon, in the Tejiva Sutta, the Buddha also says, a monk suffuses the world in the four directions with a mind of benevolence then above, below, and all around, the whole world from all sides completely with a benevolent, all-embracing, great, boundless, peaceful, and friendly mind, just as a powerful conch blower makes himself heard with no great effort in all four cardinal directions, so too is there no limit to the unfolding of heart-liberating heart liberating benevolence. So what the Metta Sutta does what Metta is for is to call, up, call us up in the face of fear and dismay to protect and cultivate our limitless hearts. And in fact, Tanisaro Bhikkhu suggests that we adopt not just friendliness as a translation for Metta, but goodwill. The Metta Sutta says that we should be extremely careful to, qual to protect this quality of mind. And this is the key to the image of the mother and child. And Tanisaro Bhikkhu translates this as follows. As a mother would risk her life to protect her child, even so should one cultivate a limitless heart with regard to all beings. With goodwill for the entire cosmos, cultivate a limitless heart, above, below, all around, unobstructed, without enmity or hate. 
whether standing, walking, sitting or lying down, as long as one is alert, one should be resolved on this mindfulness. And this is called a sublime abiding, or a Brahma Vihara, here and now. So we, we see the image of mother and child and we, we kind of think of something outside ourselves. But actually, the mother protecting the child is, we are the mother protecting our hearts. It's not something outside us at all. And so I find this translation really helpful. It makes clear that this instruction is about cultivating our own hearts and minds. And I understand this as a practice instruction aimed at us, the goal to cultivate goodwill, leading to compassion and to equanimity. You know, it's not about changing any circumstances or affecting the anger or hatred of others, except insofar as we become an example right, for others. Our own equanimity affects others. We're not trying to actually change them, but our equanimity has effects. And as Gil has emphasized, the ground of all of this is facing our own suffering, so that when we can experience Anukampa from a place where, you know, we have found the ground of actual existence in this interdependence. We do not feel ourselves separate from others. That's the start of liberation. So these are really all the early teachings, and I haven't said anything about Zen, <laughs> except insofar as we chant the Metta Sutta, and we use Metta as a practice. So for the last part of this talk, um, I want to um, turn to the Bodhisattva's way, to Mahayana, the Mahayana Buddhist way, which is our way. Soto Zen is Mahayana Buddhism. So, you know, again, the Metta Sutta comes from the early teachings in which the goal is to end rebirth and to attain liberation. Our version of the last line of the Sutta is, one who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. At least that's the version I'm used to, right? One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. And that's kind of a Zen spin on what this teaching says is its aim. Um, this is what Tanisara Bhikkhu says. <clears throat> he translates it differently. He says, not taken with views, but virtuous and consummate in vision. Having subdued desire for sensual pleasures, one never again will lie in the womb. Right, and several translations from the original Pali of the Metta Sutta also mentioned not returning to the womb. So this early teaching and the translations that are, I think, more literal make very clear the goal is non-returning, where non-returning to existence, whereas in the Mahayana unfolding of this teaching um, that we have, we are freed from this duality. Right? We are freed from the duality of birth and death. And the Bodhisattva remains in the world to help beings, right? We vow to stay here. We could be liberated, but we vow to stay here. The Buddhist uh, the scholar of, of, of uh, Zen, a scholar of Dogen, He Jin Kim, says that the essence of the Bodhisattva ideal is compassion. Maha Karuna, great compassion. In Japanese, it's Daihi. And he points out that in Dogen's uh, collection called The Extensive Record, which we don't look at so much, we tend to focus on the uh, Shobo Genzo, but in the Extensive Record, 
Dogen speaks of Shakyamuni Buddha as the great medicine king, which is a great thing to be reminded of, the Buddha as the medicine king in this time of contagion, right, in this time of plague. Buddha is the medicine king who aroused joy and relieved suffering. And the Japanese for these terms is uh, ji. Dogen literally aroused ji, or joy. And from joy, he carried out he, which is a kind of empathy. Ji, he, joy and empathy together mean compassion. Ji alone is used sometimes for maitri, for friendliness or goodwill. So joy, friendliness, goodwill, metta, together with empathy are compassion. Daihi, great compassion, is then related uh, to metta for Dogen in this way. And Heejin Kim goes on to say that compassion was essentially the reconciliation of a dualistic opposite of self and non-self, sentient and insentient, Buddhas and sentient beings, and so forth. Right? The way of the Bodhisattva is, I am thusness, you are thusness, just you as you are. And that's why Dogen said that when we study ourselves thoroughly, we study others thoroughly as well. We cast off the self and other. Thusness, suchness, these are all words that are sometimes used for reality, things as they are, non-duality. Reality is non-duality. In the Shobogenzo, which is the main collection of teachings that we tend to be more familiar with, the Metasutta is never mentioned. But Dogen does offer us something else. The Bodhisattva's four methods of guidance, or the Bodai Satashi Shobo. The four methods of guidance, and this is a Dogen thing, are generosity, is the first one, kind speech is the second, beneficial action is the third, and the fourth, sometimes translated as identity action, is also sometimes translated as simultaneity. Right? The first three are kind of easy to understand, but what could identity action or simultaneity be? Um, they're all expressions of non-duality. Right? Um, and it seems to me that these four methods of guidance are Dogen's expression of the four immeasurables that I talked about in the beginning. The way Dogen talks about these things is, you know, giving, for example, is giving for the sake of giving. It's not for the expectation of good karma or merit or praise or anything else. It expresses a kind of fundamental identity of self and other. We sometimes say the emptiness of the three wheels of giver, receiver, and gift. They're empty. They're not different. Dogen says that the kind that kind speech is Buddha handling sentient beings like babies, <laughs> which reminds me of the mother and her only child in the Metasutta. And I think, you know, at this time of angry speech, which I myself generate without much difficulty, um, it's helpful to remember these words of Dogen, which I found very powerful. Dogen says, as long as your present life lasts, you should take pleasure in speaking compassionately. Generation after generation, let us exert ourselves unremittingly. Compassionate speech is fundamental to the pacification of enemies 
and the reconciliation of rulers, right? So the, the pacification of enemies and the reconciliation of rulers. Dogen speaks of compassion as the seed of loving kindness rather than the other way around. He frequently does this, Dogen. He tends to turn things upside down and inside out, right? So rather than, as the four immeasurables say, meta leads to compassion, Dogen says compassion is the seed of loving kindness. Dogen says, consider this, kind speech has the power to influence even the imperial mind. It is not just to speak highly of other strengths and achievements. Right? So kind speech is not just nice talk. The third guidance, beneficial action, is to work for the welfare of all beings without expecting any repayment or any result even. He says that to assist self and others without discrimination is the way. He says, if you grasp this truth, you will see that this is the reason that even grasses and trees, wind and water, are all naturally engaged in the action of benefiting others. And Dogen explains that this practice of benefiting others is a complete truth. In Japanese, this is ippo, a complete truth. And this is much like the first guidance, giving or generosity without any expectation for the sake of giving. The last guidance, doji, or identity action, or simultaneity, it's hard to translate it here, is maybe how Dogen understands the workings and expression of love in the bodhisattva way. The fundamental meaning is at the same time, doji. Dogen says that doji, identity action, means non-difference. It is non-difference from self, non-difference from others. Action means right form, correct manner, dignity. That you cause yourself to be in identity with others after causing others to be in identity with you. However, the relationship of self and others varies limitlessly according to the circumstance. This means we are in relationship and everything is always changing, but we are always in relationship. And we are always, if we understand correctly, identified with others and others are identified with us. So Dogen points to non-duality as usual, breaking down barriers between self and others. But he is doing this from the standpoint of the Bodhisattva way as it emerged many centuries after the Buddha gave his original teachings. Elsewhere in the Bodhisattva's four method of guidance, Dogen says, the sea does not refuse water because of its identity with water. You should further understand that water is also fully prepared with the virtue of not refusing the sea. On this account, water gathers itself flowing into the sea and earth piles up forming a mountain because the ocean does not exclude the ocean. It is the ocean and it is large because mountains do not exclude mountains, they are mountains and they are high. That's the end of that quote. So it seems to me that the natural state of regard that does not experience hatred or ill will, Anukampa, is also encompassed in this. And I will try to remember this the next time somebody comes close to me and is not wearing a mask or has forgotten that they are not in fact separate but nothing but relationship. Are there any questions, comments, objections?
expansions. You can unmute yourself if you want to say something. Shoto, thank you so much. The the image or the explanation of of the of the thought or or, or um, perspective on mother protecting child as us protecting our own heart or you know kind of parallel or same. I, I, you kind of know that, but it's it's so helpful to hear it expressed that way. Thank you. Yeah, I have to say, when I, I first started exploring this, um, it was because I actually had a kind of antipathy to the Metta Sutta. Um, it, there were times when I felt like it was um, uh, know, too saccharine, <laughs> or that, or somehow that we were ex- we were asking for things to be not as they were. You know, and our practice is to accept everything as it is and work with it. And so, even something that appears to be so wholesomely good um, as may all beings be happy. I was like, but they're not happy. (laughs) Or, you know, how do we wish this for others when people are suffering in such terrible ways, even if I'm not, others are. And you wish that they don't, they're not suffering, but by the same token, how do you kind of offer them these words that seem so uh, unhelpful when people are, you know, at the time I started looking at this was during the time of Black Lives Matter, uh, and you know, it was, now that seems a long time ago. It's only a year or two ago, two years ago. And thinking, how do I offer this? May all beings be happy when people are being murdered. You know, it 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 just didn't make sense to me in, in some fundamental way. So I started trying to understand where this teaching was coming from, and then what our practice of it should be, what it meant. So, it, you know, in meta practice, we start with ourselves and then we widen the circles of regard, right? So that, that's pretty standard these days. And in our practice, we often do this. But um, that starting with yourself is really fundamental. And Gil also, I was, very, I was really reassured when Gil said, oh, God, I thought this was like the hallmark card of, you know, um, Buddhist teaching. Um, and, and what helped him was to sit a lot of meditation and realize how much his suffering was acting in him, that he couldn't experience anything else but his suffering, and that the many, many hours and years, I mean, you talked about decades of practice, softening his own heart, opening his own heart to his own suffering, and releasing hatred, releasing fear, is, is what allowed Anukampa to arise. And he didn't know what it was at first. He thought it was compassion, but he realized it was this... Uh, kind of care, caring for more than just himself. Um, and, and I, I guess I'll just add one other thing to this is about Anukampa that um, someone says to the Buddha, because he seems to be in this incredible, you know, heavenly uh, mode, um, are you a deva? Are you a divinity? And he says, don't say that. You know, he refers to the, the Brahma Viharas. And he said, actually, no, I'm not, that's not what, what's happened, or that's not where I am. Instead, I am experiencing Anukampa, this kind of very broad regard for all beings. And, it's, and, it's, and that is the basis for the Buddha of action, whereas compassion is a deeply meditative state which you, in which you experience non-duality, but he does not urge you to act out of that. So this is a difference in some of the earliest teachings, and maybe it's a little too... Um, esoteric for the times, but I thought it was helpful uh, 
for me at least, and hope to might help others understand where all this is coming from. Whereas for Dogen, you know, identity, action, this, this simultaneity of self and other is the whole enchilada. But it's not always easy to grasp. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your talk. I think it is so helpful to, as a reminder to, um, during, during these crazy times, I think people oftentimes fall back on their fear as Tim talked about last week in his Dharma talk, right? They fall back on these patterns of uh, constriction. And so just the reminder to, to look inside and, ex and work, there's something very, very uh, specific to work with, which is this opening, this open heartedness and, you know, in, in training in the Brahma Viharas, you know, you always start with yourself, but then it's like you, you look for the felt sense. And that's, you know, that's where you start is the felt sense. So if you have that felt sense, even for like a, you know, a, a, a video of kittens, <laughs> or something, right? Like if you start there, you get a sense of that and then you can expand it out, right? Um, I just wanted to, to also say that um, you know, when, when watching the news and seeing, um, you know, protesters armed, you know, storming the Capitol in Michigan or, you know, hearing about people buying guns in large numbers or uh, underground bunker sales going up, you know, all these different things. It's like we, we have a tendency to forget that our true nature is interconnection. Right. We have this when fear arises, it's like that separation and like, no, <laughs> no, I don't I don't acknowledge this or I don't want this. You know, that can come up. But how do we, uh, you know, in quieting our uh, our fears and taking that time to, to look inside and be spacious with what is right. And, and ex you know, that doesn't mean that you don't feel fear. It means working with it. Right. Um, but I wanted to mention that I had one of my. <laughs> childhood books that I, I really, uh, really struck me was the Lord of the Flies. Ah. And I just today read in the news that um, I had no idea about this, but um, apparently in 1966, there were a group of British school children living on an island who uh, uh, basically decided that they were going to steal a boat and, and try to get to I guess New Zealand or Fiji. And anyway, they, they ended up shipwrecked on an island and lived there for over a year, these, you know, six boys. And instead of, you know, uh, what happened in The Lord of the Flies, what ended up happening was that they, you know, they developed ways of, of working together. And one of the first rules was like, don't quarrel with one another. And they imposed a time out. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was exactly like, I mean, it's kind of in some sense what Zazen is, right? It's a time out from hatred and fear. And I mean, not a time out in the sense of, you know, denying it, right? But it's just a allowing for settling, right? So anyway, I just, I, you know, during your talk, I just, I wanted to share, I had that urge to share. And please, you know, if you're interested, uh, you know, just look it up in, in the, uh, in the internet and uh the guardian has a beautiful article written about those boys and, and what they did 
Yeah, thank you for, for that, Mako, and for bringing up the, the armed protesters. I think the most afraid I've been, strangely enough, I mean, I've been terrified of getting this virus, honestly. Um, I've, laid, I've been lying awake at night thinking, I'm going to die if I get this. You know, I have some risk factors. and Sometimes I've been quite afraid, but there's also some equanimity with it, too. Um, but the, seeing the protesters with these you know, military-grade weaponry and some of them wearing these death masks and reading about what some of the uh, images that they wear, even the shirts that they wear, um, what they mean, I won't go into all the details, but um, frightened me, really frightened me and, and frightened for the society. Um, and then I really have to remember, it's hard, but I have to remember you know, everybody wants the same thing in a sense. It's just a distorted image, perhaps, of the same thing, which is, in their case, in an arc, we want to be, we all want to be in control. We don't want to get the virus. They have a version of what they want. We're all human beings, and um, we, are, we are all actually at risk. We all die. Um, there are just very many responses to the condition of being a human being. And so, what do I want to offer these people? I can't outgun them. I don't want to be armed. I don't want to be angry and fearful. I don't want to offer violent resistance. So how do I want to be? And, and you know, what, what can I offer is kind of where I'm trying to come from. But yeah, it's, these, are, these are difficult. There are many kinds of contagion, <laughs> many kinds of contagion, actually. Fear is a contagion. We, we catch it from each other. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Anything else? Can I just ask you quickly, what was the name of the sutta that you mentioned, the one that, uh, original Pali sutta that the Anukampa was mentioned? It's mentioned throughout, actually. There is, if you look up Anukampa sutta, you will find one. It's very short, and it's actually about a monk and how a monk regards um, his lay supporters, what he offers lay people. Um, and, but the term Anukampa itself is, th is found throughout Buddha's teaching. And if you look at translations, which of course is what I rely on, it's often translated as compassion. But Gill, of course, knows these suttas in the original and realized that what was being translated as compassion was not always this karunya, that karunya was more, much more seldom uh, mentioned and often when the Buddha is talking about is either metta or um, this thing called Anukampa, which even Gil, after many decades, hadn't realized. So we're not so far behind the curve here. <laughs> um, but I really like the, this notion, sort of what Mako is talking about, that if you're left on your own and you realize your interdependence, what will arise is this uh, sense of, uh, that comes out of connectedness, which is caring, right? Caring, concern for everyone, right, as a kind of basic natural state. He, he, Gil talks quite a bit about how we're social creatures, right? We are, human beings are in relation to each other, and of course to everything else, Dogen, you know, widens this vastly. But that's what a true society is. It, it, it's, it's care and concern for others because we are, in fact, totally connected. But you can look up, if you look up Gill's lectures, he gave five lectures on this, and then he gave a talk. I only found this last night um, uh, that specifically mentions COVID and the time of COVID-19 and, you know, Anukampa and, and love. 
Um, I haven't had a chance to listen to it. It's like an hour-long lecture, but he will. if you're interested in Anunkampa, that's the place I would start. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Shoro, this yeah. is Karen, but first okay. I just noticed that uh, Melanie had a comment on the chat, and oh. I we wanted to look at that first, and then I might have a question. Okay, um, Melanie says, fear of the virus, yes. Uh, Reverend Shoro, you mentioned greed, which seems connected to self-protection and pulling away, as in I need to make sure that I or my people survive on all levels, both conscious and unconscious, uh, and keep everything for me and us. And that way I find self-protection can mean not extending friendliness. Friendliness is a kind of generosity and survival mode doesn't encourage friendliness. Maybe guns are the external manifestation of extreme self-protection. I agree. Yes, thank you very much. I think that's the hoarding that we see is out of fear. We're not going to have what we need, right? Even when the fear is irrational. There's no shortage of toilet paper, people. <laughs> but we've created one. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And Karen, did you have a thought? Building walls is another. Yeah, building walls is building another. Walls. Um, yeah, so I was interested in um, the idea. Um, I, I don't know if I understood it correctly, but uh, um, um, as you were talking about those early uh, four immeasurables about greed being a close enemy, yeah. it made a lot of sense to me. You know, you go from kind of having this care for everyone and everything to wanting, to loving those things and then wanting them. Um, and it also, but I also feel, feel like, and I don't know if this is a similar thing or not, but the anger and fear coming up sometimes feels like it's a close, a close enemy to, to an attempt to do caring, um, I had this yesterday, and it was about, you know, the recent shooting of the young man who was jogging. And um, I have a friend who posted on Facebook, this is why he moved to um, Puerto Rico as a biracial man um, of just experiencing so much racism, even personally in his life. He's a professional um, person who... um, is, you know, a good friend that I care about. And um, it made me feel so angry that, you know, somebody I care about like this has to go through this. And then multiplying that out to all the people who, who have to suffer this in our society. Um, so it feels like it's coming out of this caring, but it, it brings up anger in me. And, and so that feels like another kind of close enemy to this. Just wondered if that's, am I on base or not? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, for those of you who don't know, probably maybe everybody's heard about this, but this is a, this incident that happened in February, and I didn't hear about it at the time. I think in Georgia, where a young man of 24, 25 years old was running through a neighborhood and, um, uh, was essentially chased down by a father and son in a truck. He kept trying to evade them and um, was shot and killed just for running, a black man running through a white neighborhood. Uh, he was thought to be a suspect in, in some, uh, some crime or crimes, but he, he was a totally innocent person. 
and only just now were the people responsible charged. Um, the, initially, there was a they declined to press charges. The local authorities. Um, so yeah, uh, it, what it brought up in me is a tremendous sadness, tremendous sadness that this keeps happening, and that our um, culture welcomes guns, you know, into every nook and cranny now of our society, um, including state houses, including in, in, in North Carolina, at least they, you know, unless posted otherwise, they're allowed in coffee houses, they're allowed in bars. I mean, it's, it's like amazing. And they are themselves an invitation to violence, you know? And so I, what I kind of see in this is not blaming the people, although it's a systemic societal problem, um, that we have, but, but it's aided and abetted by these weapons, you know, that it makes it too easy to act on our, you know, our worst impulses, I think. Um, but it makes me very sad, really, really sad. My fear has kind of become sadness, but also I know I'm not going to be shot running down the street. I, I don't have, I'm not, that's not going to happen to me almost certainly. Um, and so my sadness is maybe a privilege. I'm sorry for your friend. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering how, you know, with practicing with that, because yeah, it feels like an anger that's coming out of something good, but is, it is bringing up a bad, sort of a, a negative. But you see it, right? You see it coming up. And so, you know, you can practice with it and see it and, and try to let it go, let the anger, you know, let it, let it go, transform it. May, may transform I, may it. I, may I? Yes, I, hi. Um, hi. Um, yeah, there's a, I think there's a sort of a corollary topic. It's just this sort of a comment um, that, that seems important in addressing this in our reactions to this, you know, what we see in society and the world from other people, you know, how to actually connect it with a form of compassion. And that's, um, you know, I, I believe that there's precedent in Buddhism, you know, and say like the teachings of the six realms, you know, how one might become fixated as a titan or hungry ghost or something like that. And um, in psychology, it's sort of a field of uh, characterological study, you know, and the notion of characterological diversity um, and I think that our, you know, at least in the analytic tradition, and you don't have to get too deep into it. Um, Stephen Johnson's character styles is an excellent work on this. Um, and I don't know how we can really practice, um, the immeasurables without this understanding. And it's looking at how do, um, individuals, you know, sentient beings become sort of colonized by these defensive structures, which then link up with, you know, systems of subjugation in the world around us, how these systems of subjugation play out through individual lives and the working of our minds. You know, we're, we're living in the aftermath of the civil war and slavery and all of human history, you know, I guess, beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. But um, actually having the structures, the, the framework for understanding how this can happen to an individual you know, what specific existential um, dilemmas occur early in development, I, I find it really helps. It, and also there's this cognitive diversity, you know, whereas maybe two thirds of the population doesn't really have the capacity for formal reasoning. So 
you know, if, they, if someone likes this or if it helps them uh, secure a certain defensive objective, that, uh, you know, everything that comes from this is right and anything that challenges it is wrong. And there's this sort of narcissistic shielding against um, vulnerability and the capacity for clear self-reflection. I think having these frameworks helps with um, compassion. Um, of course, there's a grief that has to come with it, even when the Buddha decided, I can't teach this, you know, unless maybe there's some people that might benefit, because the world is really filled with such delusion. Um, but anyway, I think it's helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a huge topic about how, you know, uh, our, our, well, two things I guess I'll say, and try to say them briefly, we should, we should do the chant and then, you know, talk more informally. Um, but just to your point, I think, um, yeah, the Buddha wasn't sure anybody could understand what he understood and, and decided, you know, he, he would try to teach it. Um, and at one point, I, I think it's the Lotus Sutra, a bunch of folks walk off <laughs> from his teaching and he says, better that they go, you know, so, so there is that. But on the other hand, you know, human life has always been suffering. It's always been full of turmoil. There have been societal, you know, huge societal problems. Um, from the get-go. In Buddha's own time, in Dogen's time, there was civil war and famine and people dead in the streets, and he did what he did. So in some ways, it's not different, but there are many different approaches to the teachings, which we, we want to believe are universal, right? They came from India, they went to China, and further east, and now they've come around the world to us, and it's, it's relevant, right? The teachings are, are relevant. But contextualizing them for ourselves and understanding how they're relevant to our time and our experience is an ongoing project, and, and many people are tackling pieces, big pieces of this, um, through you know various means. Um, so, you know, if you want to put up in the chat a reference to the work that you were talking about for people who are interested in, in following up, um, please do that. I think that would that would be. Good. I'd like to have the reference. Um, and, and thank you. I think you know you're not. You put your finger on something, which is how how do we deal with people with such radical, different systems of thought about reality, about themselves, about even about you know facts, what we would consider facts of of, of what's going on. It's yeah. yeah thank you. I think yeah. Did this book really encourage compassion, and, and also even an understanding of how some of these can be unworked? But it's it, it requires volition, you know, yeah. and that's often not the case, which is also tragic. You know, addiction studies also helps. Cultic studies help. Yeah, there's you know, a lot of things that helps. Helps everything. There are a lot of things that help. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>